So we're working our way through the books of Ezra, and Nehemiah will be in Ezra chapter 10 uh, this afternoon. Take just a moment. Let me pray. Join with me. Join your heart with me to ask for the Lord's help in the preaching and hearing and applying of his word. Again, Father, we come asking for the aid and help that you so willingly give as we open up the scriptures, read from the scriptures, preach from the scriptures, to hear from you. And that's our desire. So open wide our hearts this afternoon to be both instructed, but also informed and moved in our hearts in ways that honor you and glorify you. Take us, use us, mold us, make us according to the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? What does that mean? What does it take? How do you get in? How do you become? You could say currently, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does one become a Christian? What does it take to become a Christian? What does it mean to be in and considered a part of the people of God? This is so much more than just existing in God's creation. He's all our creator. He has formed everything that is. So is just existing, just being human, just participating in what he's created. Does that make us part of his family? The reality is that God has so much more in mind with us and for us than merely existing and functioning in his creations. He has plans that we would truly know him, that we would live with him and for him, that we would enjoy him and enjoy living under his reign, under his rulership, under his love, under his mercy, his plans and his intentions are that we would be a people that belong to him in a marriage-like commitment. Marriage-like, bound, promised, committed, exclusive, joined together for life. That's the kind of life that the Lord plans for us calls us into. So we're studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are actually the, the, the last books in the Old Testament narrative, though they don't land in your Bible at the end of the Old Testament. The storyline is actually the end of the Old Testament storyline. And as we come to Ezra's chapters 9 and 10, where we are focusing uh, last week and this week, we sort of pick up and jump into a storyline where the people of God, many, many years prior, have so forsaken the Lord, so persistently, so adamantly, so against the promptings of the Lord, they have so forsaken the Lord, turned away from him, turned to other gods, that eventually, and in time, the Lord sent them into exile. In other words, they had to go to a foreign country. They lost their land. They lost their homes. They lost themselves as being a gathered people and organized. Their temple was destroyed. Everything functionally about them that made them the people of God was, in a sense, taken away from them. 
and they go off into Babylon, into exile, and they are there for 70 years. And after 70 years, God begins this wonderful, miraculous work of restoring them, bringing them back. Now, they're a thousand miles away from their original home, and now God is working miraculously through ungodly, pagan, secular kings and rulers and orchestrating a return of God's people. And God is reestablishing them as a nation, as a people. He's bringing them back. And things are really starting to look good. The first campaign of tens of thousands of people made the journey reestablished themselves in Judea, in the city of Jerusalem in particular. They started rebuilding the temple. Things were really looking up. I mean, this was a positive time in Israel's history. The people of God were visible again. They were together again. They were home again. They were, in a sense, under their own governing selves again. They were under the Lord. The temple was being rebuilt, and they were beginning to worship the Lord again. Everything was looking so good. But then something came up. Something came up in Ezra chapter 9. It turns out that many of the people now returned exiles there for about 80 years, had been off marrying foreign women, women that didn't know the Lord, had no intention of serving the Lord, and they were sort of intermarrying. So the, the people of God were sort of mixing with the people who were not the people of God, and this was becoming normal life. So Ezra leads the second campaign, and he's bringing Levites and temple workers and priests there, and everything is getting up and running. About four months later, he finds out all this time these people have been intermarrying with non-believing spouses and so their worship this marriage-like commitment that God had designed for his people was getting all distorted and messed up so outwardly everything was looking great temple was up and running they were where they were supposed to be but there was something more going on in their hearts what does it mean to be the people of God it's not just where you live. It's not just coming to church. It's not just being here Sunday after Sunday. That You sitting in these seats. I remember my first pastor in Michigan, young believer, used to say this funny statement. Sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a Cadillac. Something was amiss in these people's hearts that was threatening, changing, altering the fact that they were the people of God. Let's look at Ezra chapter 10. I'm going to read just the five verses. It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land 
But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. There's more to being the people of God than living in the city of God. There's more to being the people of God than going to the temple once a day, once a week, bringing a sacrifice, going through the sacrificial ceremonies of the temple. There's more to being the people of God than your last name or what family you were born to. There's more to being the people of God than being willing to make a thousand-mile journey on foot to return to the homeland and resettle in Judea. Ezra 9 and 10 actually show us two things that are necessary, absolutely necessary for any person to be a part of the people of God. The underlying subjects in chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra are faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. No one can be a part of of the family of God without faith and repentance. We apprehend the grace of God through faith and repentance. They're necessary. They are necessary to get in and they are necessary to remain in. They are a necessary lifestyle for every Christian. It is a call to every human being. Every living human being on the planet is called in the scriptures by the Lord directly. You must repent and believe. Two things every person must possess, must do, must have, must live in the good of faith and repentance. The text that we've been teaching from, obviously marriage is the issue. And, you know, I was sort of introducing and saying, you know, we have a belief about the Bible that makes us committed to teach through the Bible. So I don't just sit around all week and say, hey, what do you think everybody would like to hear this week? And oh, I think they'd like, we should talk about this. And I think this would be fun. That we've got this conviction that we open up our Bible and that everything in the Bible is from the Lord and for us. So that commitment gets us in some awkward places because there's many a week where I'm kind of chagrined. It's like, I don't know that this was such a good idea that we're so committed to teach through the Bible because sometimes there's a chapter, sometimes there's a verse. It's like, well, this is really confusing. And I'm not really even sure what God is saying in this. And I'm not sure why. And, I, and even if I did figure it out, I'm not sure these people would really appreciate hearing it or want to hear it or, or, or need to hear it. And so I'm starting off in these verses and it's like, okay, these people married the wrong people. So they broke faith, and now their repentance is to divorce them, to get rid of them. (sighs) 
we going to do with this? I was like, Lord, really? Uh, couldn't, couldn't it have been like a, some different kind of sin? Like, oh, they ate meat offered to idols or something, or they were forcing them to wear head coverings. And it's like, well, yeah, those kinds of things are not very culturally relevant. So we could get right past those sins and we could get at the heart of what this talking about. But it's about marriage. We get married. We are married. We, we value marriage. We don't really like to see divorce. Divorce is, 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 is difficult and hard, and we, we would really like to avoid it. And it's like here he is, like, it seems to be like what it pleases the Lord. And it's like, it's like God, you, you, you're making my job kind of hard here. Could it be different? And, but the more I'm pressing in and getting behind, I realize the wisdom of God. Because by having this be about marriage, we begin to feel the weight of the importance of faith and repentance. These are not light issues. They are the highest of issues. So Jesus, he wanted us to realize the true weight of the kingdom, and so he made some weighty statements, some strange statements about what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be a Christian. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, all right, I'm sorry. Jesus, what, what in the world, why would you say something? Hating your parents? Okay, well, think about it. We know the Bible tells us to honor our parents. How could he say this? Why would he say this? So much in that statement appears so wrong. And yet Jesus, without flinching, says this is precisely what you need to understand. If you want to be a part of the people of God, if you want to be my disciple. And so he makes this statement as a, a kind of statement of comparison to emphasize just how important and how necessary it is to repent and believe. How absolutely weighty and important it is that you and I be inside his kingdom, under his reign, under his rulership, under his grace. If your status with God, if your relationship with God is not of such a priority and does not in your soul land with such weight that if we were to compare it to your love for your family, making your love for your family appear as if it were hatred, that much of a contrast, that kind of a comparison, then Jesus is saying, you don't quite have it yet. It's that big. It's that weighty. It's that significant. Okay, now, hang on. Before you run out the door and never come back, because of such a strange and bizarre statement, Jesus said something else. Truly, I say to you, 
there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life. Okay, so before you run out the door, before you say no to Jesus, before you say that, that is just a bizarre way too extreme ask of me that I would be so devoted to him, so committed to him that it would far exceed any other human commitment, even the commitment to myself. That's how much he means to me. The glory of it all comes when we yield to him our all. We risk and we run the danger of trying to concoct a sort of gospel light. Tastes great, but not that much expectation. Tastes great, not too much demand on your life. Oddly enough, Jesus steps in without flinching, without hesitation, willing to bear the misunderstanding, if you think this was a strange, bizarre statement, and saying, this this is what I'm calling you to. Your very life. Everything. And he assures us, you're willing to believe that, And surrender that. I promise you. It is virtually impossible to do that and regret it. A hundredfold. You'll be surprised. You'll be amazed. You'll be overwhelmed at the kind of grace that floods into your life, into your soul. When you step over that threshold and surrender it all to him. Our text, really what I want to do is focus on chapter two, or verse two that we read, with broken faith with our God. But now there's, even now there's hope for us in spite of that. That's what I want us to grasp what's going on, the importance of faith and repentance. These are necessary responses to the gospel, the good news, telling you the good news. Christ came, sent by the Father, to preach good news, to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice to redeem you and me and restore us and bring us back to God. That is Good news, that good news requires, it is necessary that every person who hears that good news has a response of faith and repentance. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, here is the statement that was written by those who put that together. It says, although repentance is not to be rested in, 
as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. You cannot expect pardon to be a reality from God in your life except that there be faith and repentance functioning and operating in your life. We talked through the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter when Jesus begins his ministry. It says this, verse 14 of chapter 1, Gospel of John. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Okay, so John is saying, first thing that Jesus says, he's starting off his public ministry and the first pronouncement, this is how I would characterize his first sermon, which remained his sermon. Repent and believe. Two things you must do. Two things I must do in a response to the good news in order to apprehend the grace of God in our lives. Later in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas miraculously released from prison and share the gospel with the prison guard. And the guard asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Soon after Paul is preaching in Athens, he appeals and commands to them in his sermon saying, the times of ignorance of God was overlooked in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. No exception. Only way, only response, necessary response, required response. When it comes to faith in particular, I was focusing on verse 2 of chapter 10. Two things you need to believe in verse 2. We have broken faith with our God. Do you believe that? The reality of sin, Genesis chapter 3, did happen. We have fallen away, forsaken, ignored, unaware of, living our lives, living our own way. We have broken faith with our God. Not, I compare myself with others and I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit better than the person next to me. There's no comparison. It's not how you feel about yourself. I feel comfortable. I just, I just feel like God's with me all the time. It's all okay. It has nothing to do with how you feel about yourself. It has nothing to do with how you see yourself in comparison with the person next to you. It is, it is directly, specifically, you standing before the Lord. Can you say yes or no? Have you broken faith with the Lord? The answer is yes. The question is, do you believe it? Ezra, he got it. Even though he himself 
didn't marry a foreign woman. He sees this happening to the people of God, and he is broken. He is devastated. Oh, Lord, there is something desperately wrong here. He mourned. He cried. He tore his clothes. He pulled out his beard. There was an agony inside of him because the very communion that they as the people of God were designed to have with the Lord himself was clearly broken. We cannot be the people of God and break faith with him. That's one half of what we must believe, that that is our condition, that we have fallen away. But there is one more thing that must be believed in order for faith to be complete, complete, and that is that in spite of this, there is hope for us. Yes, we have broken faith with the Lord, but even so, in spite of that, there is still hope. God has promised to make a way for us. God is bringing us back. God is restoring us. God is at work in us, and God is at work for us. There is hope, not because of anything we've done, but because He is making a way. You must believe that. You must believe, you must be able to say, honestly, look in the mirror. In some way, I realize when I look into the scriptures, I have broken faith with the Lord. But you read on and you read on, and he sends his son, and Christ comes and preaches good news, and you say, in spite of that, in spite of where I lack, there is hope. There is hope because of what God has done, not because of who I am. Not because of where I live. Not that I sit in a church meeting once a week. There is hope because of what he has done in and through his son on my behalf. That is faith. What is repentance? Both faith and repentance are really part of God's salvation. And we can distinguish between them. Many theologians do. They are not the same, but many would say they are so joined together like two sides of the same coin. Calvin argues that repentance follows faith and is born of faith because we believe we repent. Other theologians argue it the other way. Now, John Murray, now some of you that were in our regional theology class read John Murray about this where he argues it is an unnecessary question and the insistence that one is prior to the other is futile there is no priority the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance saving faith is permeated with repentance and repentance is permeated with faith they so work together as a team like two sides of a coin now repentance In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem gives us this definition. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. There's got three components of repentance. There is sorrow for sin. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
He makes this statement. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul is saying, look, grief is not grief. There are two kinds of grief. There is worldly grief and there is godly grief. He's using the term worldly grief to describe there is a grief you can have that has nothing to do with God. It is a godless grief. And then there is godly grief. There is a kind of grief that comes in and out of you relating to God. The godly grief is a good kind of grief. Yes, it is grief. It is not easy. It is difficult, but it leads to repentance. Ungodly grief, worldly grief does not. That kind of grief leads to death. That ungodly, or as Paul says, worldly grief, produces all kinds of responses in our hearts that lead to death, but they are sort of like coping mechanisms of trying to deal with the shame and the guilt that we experience in our soul. These are very familiar to many of us. Blame shifting. Well, I was wrong, but it really wasn't my fault. There were extenuating circumstances. It really was others that caused me to do this. It really was more their fault than mine. We shift the blame. Okay, so we have grief inside that is due to shame and guilt because we have broken faith with the Lord. And yet an ungodly grief, a grief without God, prompts us, stirs us, pushes us to try and deal with that grief in a way that has nothing to do with God. We define it away. Well, it really wasn't wrong. It actually wasn't sin. Let's relabel it. Let me redefine it. Let me take God's definitions off the table. Let me write my own definitions. We medicate it, deaden the shame, deaden the guilt, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, sleep, shopping. Find your medicine. What does it for you? What can you do when your soul is in turmoil? What activity, what thing can you engage in? What can you do? How much chocolate cake does it take for you to feel better, to deaden the sense of guilt and shame? These are responses to an ungodly kind of grief. We try to medicate our way through. We criticize others. That's a good one. That always works. That always makes me feel better. If you can't be big, be little. If I can't be on top, let me just talk about how bad somebody else is, how low somebody else is. So let's criticize and belittle others. Let's get cynical. Let's keep pointing out how others are worse. And that makes us feel just a little bit better. Oh, we could go on and on with the list of ways that we try to compensate and deal with guilt and shame. But there is a godly sorrow, a sorrow that is born of God, a sorrow that acknowledges God, 
a sorrow that takes God's word and his authority and who he is into account, which leads, Paul says, that's actually a good kind of sorrow. Even though it's just as painful, it's a good kind of sorrow. Why? Because it leads you to repentance, to this place where it's just simply, Father, I've sinned. Father, I was wrong. I don't deserve to be called your son or your daughter. I've sinned. Sorrow over sin. Three components to repentance. Sorrow over sin. Second component, renunciation. A true confession. It goes beyond a sense of sorrow. It involves having a clear assessment of the sin. A biblical understanding of it. Not our own pop psychology definition of it. No. What does God say about it? What is the word of God? How does it define it? What is God warning about? What is God defining as sin for us? And agreeing with God's assessment of it. It was wrong because God had said so. And I'm guilty of it. This is what God said to do, not to do. And I'm a living contradiction to his word. And so my confession, what I'm renouncing, is specifically how I have broken faith with the Lord. And then the third part is turning from sin. Repentance is not complete until there's an actual turning, an actual change, and an actual evidence in an a effort being put forth to go in the other direction. It's like, it's like turning around. Sin is like turning your back on God, walking away from Him. Repentance is stopping and turning around and moving back towards Him. So there's an activity, there's a change in lifestyle. John the Baptist strongly challenged the Pharisees who, who idolized a good appearance in the eyes of others, who wanted to have all the appearance of coming to John and believing in John and being baptized by John, and he called them out. He said, here's what you need. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You are here wanting to appear penitent, but you're not willing to change the direction of your life the things that you're doing, the direction that you're going. The Lord wants to bear good fruit in my life, in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, putting on these things. These are things that the Spirit brings to us as we enter into the kingdom through faith and repentance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whereas, Paul writes in Galatians, on the contrary, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, orgies and things like these, all kinds of evil practices. James picks up, picks up this theme of, if you're really saying you're, you're repenting, it means doing something different. And he backs it up by emphasizing how cheap words can be unless they're backed up by how we live our lives. You say you have faith? Show me. 
Show me your faith in real life expression. How are you living? If there is genuine faith, it produces a lifestyle. Now, James is the first one to say, hey, we stumble in many ways. And if you're here trying to say we have no sin, you're a liar. God already told us about you and me. Sin is already there. Yes, we're fighting a battle. Yes, we're still dealing with indwelling sin. But James is saying, look, don't, don't be fooled by mere confessions. If it's genuine, if it's true, it will show up in our lives. Okay, now, a few times before, and I'm going to do it again, I always try and find an opportunity to insert into a sermon the seven A's of confession from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. I'm sure I've done this two or three times in the last 23 years. So you can't accuse me of overdoing it. And I realize, and I know for myself, and I believe it's true for you, we often need a refresher course in what it means to make a good confession. We've studied the book, The Peacemaker, many, many years ago as a church. Some of you are familiar with it, some of you not, but there's been many times when talking with someone in my office, a couple trying to resolve conflict, dealing with, co- with conflict, and I bring this up, and they, and they look with just blank looks. Who's Ken Sandy? Peacemaker what? Seven A's of what? Never, never heard of that. So, so if you've heard it three times, bear with me. It's good for the soul. He lists off seven A's that make up for a good confession. Now, it's focused much on resolving conflict, but a confession is a confession, and it's good, and it, and it applies. Now, hear this list without hearing that I'm trying to communicate some wooden list that is some absolute set of rules that every time you confess any sin to anybody at any time, you have to include all seven. It's not necessarily the case. There's discernment and wisdom here, but hear me out and hear this list out from Ken Sandy and take it to heart and you'll see how valuable it is, I hope. First, A of confession, address everyone involved. When we break faith, when we sin, when we sin against one another, address everyone that's affected, that's involved in what has gone wrong, in the conflict. We always begin with God, but think through who else has been affected by what I've done, by the wrongdoing. Now, some sins are strictly sins of the heart, and I can confess them to the Lord. If I went and told you about them, you'd say, thanks, Ron, but I don't know what you're talking about, wasn't affected by it, didn't include me at all. But there are other times when my sin, when your sin, actually does have an effect on somebody else, sometimes many other people. And so Ken Sandy begins the list by saying, "List from the very beginning, make sure that your confession is as far-reaching as your sin as much as possible. Second, A of confession is avoid if, but, and maybe. I don't know if you've noticed how easily this comes. I'm sorry if 
I've done something to offend you. I'm sorry, but I was having a bad day that day. I'm sorry, but maybe if you were just a little bit easier to get along with, this never would have happened in the first place. Or maybe I could have done a better job of loving you. Okay? You include those words in your confession. As soon as that word comes out, radar goes up. Bad confession. I think we need like a little buzzer. Bad confession buzzer. So you said, if, sorry, back to your prayer closet. Think it through again. Let's try this one again. Not a good confession. You're making excuses, which means you don't really get it yet. Third A, admit specifically. The more accurate the detail, the better and more fruitful the confession. Ambiguity, vagueness results in a poor confession that will accomplish little for both parties. Be specific. My comments were careless and critical. They must have hurt you. God calls me to speak differently. He tells me in these verses how, how to talk to you, and I, and I didn't talk to you that way. In fact, I, I, the words that I spoke, these things were completely the opposite. And what I said was wrong. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. If you can't get specific, you're probably not ready to make that confession. Think it through specifically. What, what did I actually say? And be able to name it biblically and understand it with some specificity and include that specificity in your confession. Fourth, acknowledge the hurt. You must have really been embarrassed when I made fun of you in front of others, when I made light of your shortcoming. I didn't think anything of it. I made light of it. But now when I look back on it, you must have felt embarrassed at what I said about you or what I said to you. Our confession should leave the other person convinced, the ones we've sinned against, the one we're confessing to, that we understand something to some degree of what it was like to be in their shoes, what they felt, what was their, their living experience of being affected by how I sinned. Number five, fifth A, accept the consequences. Confessing and being forgiven does not necessarily mean there are no consequences for our sins. Sometimes restitution is in order. In fact, it's the, it's the willingness to accept this that actually sort of proves the sincerity of the confession. It proves the sincerity. When Zacchaeus met Jesus, he said, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Okay, now that is not a biblical rule that any, if you if you stole something, you got to pay back four times the amount. It's, it's, it's not what's being said here. But his confession proves his sincerity. And if you did steal something, you do need to pay it back. 
And if you did damage somebody's property, you do need to restore it. That restitution is necessary and good and a part of it. And your willingness to accept that and do that actually just adds the sincerity and genuineness to your confession. It means you're really starting to get it. It means you see it for what it is. Number six, alter your behavior. Change the way you live. There's a difference between stumbling often in a sin and dealing with a sin over a long period of time and struggling and stumbling, but always striving to forsake it. There's a difference between that and merely continuing in your sin. If there's not a change in behavior, it seems like you don't really mean what you're saying. That's part of repentance. I see what it is. And my heart has turned to no longer do that, but rather to do this. True repentance means there's real evidence that our, the desire of our heart is to stop acting in that way and to begin acting in a way that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Our text they divorce their wives. Difficult verse, difficult concept. Tried last week to go through some New Testament verses about marriage and divorce and remarriage just to say, uh, just don't get any wild ideas here from Ezra chapters 9 and 10, okay? Hang on to that marriage for a while just yet. Let's sort this out. Don't be too quick. But the point is, they were serious about change. We didn't read the whole chapter, but it's, it, you know, it just emphasizes this point. So they're in this meeting. He calls, Ezra calls a meeting. Everybody needs to come. you got three days to come. If you don't show up in three days, you lose your property. You're, no lo- you're kicked out of the community. Okay, You are excommunicated if you don't show up for this meeting. They show up for the meeting as pouring rain. It's uncomfortable. They can't hear Ezra. He's trying to talk over the rain. They're miserable. It's cold. They're shivering. They're guilty. It's, it's like bad. It's Ezra, Ezra, look, we can't, we can't do it quite like this, but we will do it. We promise. Just give us some time. We'll set it up. And they followed through. They had all kinds of obstacles. There were all kinds of reasons to say, we can't do this. We shouldn't do this. We're going to wait. We, we don't want to do this. And yet they were committed because there was genuine repentance. And they were genuinely willing to change. They were genuinely willing to take even what would appear exaggerated steps to prove we've broken faith with our God. And they were willing to turn and alter their behavior. Seventh A, ask forgiveness. It's... We, we did this in raising our kids, and I don't know if you've experienced it. It is amazing what those words do to your heart when you say, okay, you have to say, will you forgive me? Ouch. If you're willing to say those words, you've, you've, you've come a long way, baby, you, you, are, you are in a good place because those are not easy words to say. 
Look, I'm sorry, all right? I'm sorry. I said I was sorry. What, what, okay, what more do you want from me? I'm sorry. You want me to say it again? You want me to say it louder? Um, try something different. Will you forgive me? Not in a demanding way. You're actually saying, I actually, I need, I'm, I sinned against you. I'm indebted to you. I owe you. Would you be willing to cancel that debt that I incurred against you? Will you forgive me? You've just added a level of depth, a level of weight to what's going on here. And if you're willing to say those words, chances are you're seeing things more clearly. And you are making a good confession. It proves the depth when we're willing to say those words. Why repent? I just close with a brief point. We talked about the importance of faith and repentance. We sought to explain and define what repentance really is so that we don't gloss over it, simplify it, think it's a mere apology. There's so much more going on than that. But why do it? Why go through? Why do these people go through? They had to go through the legal proceedings. They had to file papers for divorce. It took time. It took a few months for all, for all the divorce trials to be processed. They had to stand in line. They had to fill out paperwork. They had to file with the state. They had to do all these things. They were committed to doing it. Jesus comes and says, repent and believe. Okay, you have to, you have to acknowledge You've broken faith with God. You have to believe that he's provided hope for those who have broken faith with God. And you need to turn from your self-centered, self-serving ways and begin following Jesus. Why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? Because the kindness of God is what leads us to it. You presume on the riches of his kindness, the forbearance of his patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. People in Ezra chapter 10 had to take stock. We'd sinned against the Lord. We were in exile. We had lost everything. We were not a people. We were no longer people. We had no home. We had no government. We had no worship. We had no temple. We had no nothing. We were nobodies lost in a foreign land. And yet now, there they were in Jerusalem with a temple, with priests. God had been at work regardless of their sin, restoring them. They had to take into account what the Lord has done. And what possessed them to take such extreme steps? They had to acknowledge the kindness of the Lord in their lives. Now that story in Ezra 9 and 10, I mean, that's just a shadow of the real story. And you and I living in 
the goodness of the real story. The father who so loved us sends his son. Son, will you go? You're the only one who meets the requirements. Would you be willing to go and lay down your life for these covenant breakers, for these unfaithful people, and just so you know, they're going to mock you, they're going to scorn you, they're going to beat you, they're going to spit upon you, they're going to ridicule you, they are going to crucify you. But son, if you're willing, if you will go, you let me send you. And you accomplish what I sent you to accomplish. Those people, I will give you them as your inheritance. They are going to be your family. They're going to be your people. They're going to be your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters. And I'm going to give you people from every nation and you're going to have a, a, a multitude of multi-ethnic people gathered around you that adore you and worship you and live their lives for you. So in Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He had a picture of where this was all going. And he was willing to go the way of the cross in order to get to the joy that the cross would produce and bring about in you and in me. The glory of being a part of the people of God is so much greater than any other glory. Why should you repent? Why should I repent? Why should we as a local church make it a lifestyle of repentance? Because we have that kind of Savior. We've got a wonderful Savior. We've got an unusual Savior. And the only way that I can apprehend and step into the grace of God is through faith and repentance. And when I stop believing, I stop repenting, it's like I'm closing the door. And I start believing, I start repenting, it's like I'm opening the door. And the grace of God begins to pour in. Worship team, you can come on up and we'll close. I'm going to read you a prayer. This is from the Valley of Vision. A little bit revised. Got the King James taken out of it, but a Puritan prayer entitled Contrition. Almost high. It becomes me to be low in your presence. I'm Nothing compared to you. I possess not the rank and power of angels, but, but you've made me what I am and placed me where I am. Help me to embrace your sovereign pleasure. I thank you that in this state I'm capable by grace of improvement. That I can bear your image, not by submissiveness, but by design. And I can work with you and advance your cause and your glory. But alas, the crown has fallen from my head. I have sinned. I am alien to you. My head is deceitful and my mind an enemy to your law. 
Yet in my lostness, you've laid help on the mighty one, and he comes between to put his hands on us both. My umpire, my mediator, whose blood is my peace, whose righteousness is my strength, whose condemnation is my freedom, whose spirit is my power, whose heaven is my heritage. Grant that I may feel more the strength of your grace in subduing the evil of my nature, losing me from the present and loosing me from the evil, present evil world, in supporting me under the trials of life, in enabling me to abide with you in my valleys, in leading me to have a conscience void of offense before you and before men. In all my affairs, may I distinguish between duty and anxiety, and may my character and not my circumstances chiefly engage me. Repent and believe. Necessary to come in. Necessary to remain with. Can we make those things our lifestyle, our greatest commitments? This is what we do. This is what it means to be the people of God. We repent and we believe. Let's stand and